Hello, and welcome to Tech, the Olympus NDT podcast. My name is Emily Peloquin, and I want to thank you for tuning in today. This podcast is all about NDT and about the incredible people that work in our industry. I've been in this industry for just over a decade now, and I'm still amazed by the incredible people that I get to work with and how tightly connected this community is. On this show, have the chance to welcome experts from the field to chat about everything and anything, from challenging applications to new trends and even tips and tricks on how to improve your NDT game. I hope you'll enjoy the unique insight that our guests are sharing with us and that it will inspire others to also want to help in making this world a safer place. Today, we continue our journey to level three with Sean Verrett. Sean is the former co-owner of Cloverfield Services. After an asset buyout, Sean became the NDT supervisor for a company called HRV in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. In his position, Sean oversees a number of NDT-specific projects and applies his expertise directly toward training and mentoring new NDT technicians. Today, Sean shares with us his journey to his level threes and provides insight on understanding the difference between all levels. I hope you'll enjoy our conversation. Sean, thank you so much for being on the show. Well, thank you for inviting me. This is a real opportunity. And so I know you're a podcast listener uh, because we, we've talked a little bit before. And so you, you know what my first question to you will be. But I always like to ask my guests, since NDT is such a niche little market, how did you happen to stumble about the, uh, on this uh, industry? You know, it's kind of funny. I actually was doing non-destructive testing long before I ever knew what it really was. My career started out uh, as a welder. My brother taught me to weld at home in uh, 1985 and we had been doing a lot of pressure vessel welding so when you have a pressure vessel you'll check the welds with dye penetrant and what's funny is i was doing non-destructive testing years and years before i actually became involved and understood you know it was a there was a methodology and a process for qualification and certification so you know that's really where it all started and i would say i started in about 1993 doing uh dye penetrant but then years later, I got an opportunity in a bridge fabrication facility where I converted from becoming a, or from being a welder and switched over to being a QC technician. You know, at that location, we did VT, UT, MT, PT, and RT. But uh, yeah, oh, wow. okay. it's kind of funny to see how people's careers twist and wind and, and to get to where they're at. Without even knowing it was technically NDT, you know, it was just the quality control at first. And, and so how did you get into the other methods? Well, in that, as soon as I saw there was an opening in the QC department, I applied for it. And through that process, I realized that there were organizations like AWS and ASNT. And once I took a look at SNT TC1A, I realized there was a qualification requirement certification. I then took that opportunity and went back to my former employers where I had been applying dye penetrant for looking for cracks and things on welds and used those hours that I had uh, back in back in the old days of the boiler days. I, I had them write a letter 
validating that I had experience. And then I took all the letters that I had received and I used those in applying for my QC job at the bridge fabricator. And that's how I was selected. Very nice. Yes, a very smart of you because we don't always think about, you know, going and ask for the hours, but that's that's great that you did. And so now you're a level three in, in multiple methods, uh, really. So I'm, I believe UT, RT, uh, VT, well, go ahead, actually. Yeah. So <laughs> you, you know them better than I do. Right now, as far as level three, I have three disciplines. I have okay. my first that I received was magnetic particle. And okay. Then my second that I received, which is truly my core discipline, is ultrasonics. Mm -hmm. uh, so my second level three is in, in UT. My third level three is in dipenetrant, which is PT, where, I, where it all started. And of the three, I would say PT was the hardest exam that I have ever taken because the questions are written in such a way that you really have to try to stop and break them down elementally. Whereas when you're dealing with uh, a problem from radiography or, or ultrasonics, you know, typically they're math driven and you can you can look at math or physics and you can determine what the answer is. But yeah, currently I have three level threes. I have two okay. more that I want to take, which are VT and RT. I'm slating VT for April of 2021 and then RT for the fall. That's great. That's amazing. And so when when you started, did you did you know you wanted to be a level three? Was that the goal all along? Because, you know, as you know, we're doing a short series on the journey to level three. So how how was your journey to to get all those level threes? To be honest, I, I never saw myself as being level three material. I, I happen to be a high school dropout who got my GED. So I've always been a little bit behind the curve when it comes to formal education, that the level threes that I had around me as I was coming up as a trainee, they had a whole different uh, way they carried themselves. I came from the trades where you know, you can be a little bit more rough around the edges. It's a little more socially acceptable. Um, yeah. But when I got around true level threes, it, it was really daunting for me because, you know, I, I was behind the eight ball, so to speak, whereas I felt like, you know, they were up on a pedestal and I was just somewhere down in, in the, you know, in, in the muck and mire. In the trenches. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but uh, I, the longer I, I've been at my trade, the the longer I've seen that, you, you have a pathway and everybody has a, an arc in their career. Mm -hmm. So for myself, when I stopped having tests that were challenging, I realized I had to go after something harder. So yeah. when you've taken, you know, at, uh, I believe looking at my history, I, 19 years of being a level two before I got my first level three. So when you when you have that long, you start getting bored. And when you get bored, it, it has a tendency to you you have to challenge yourself to to do better. You're I, I often liken it this way. The mind is like a muscle. So if you want to become a competitive bodybuilder, what would you do? Well, you'd need to do a lot of sit-ups, a lot of push-ups, you need to do a lot of exercise to strengthen those muscles to get them to the proper form to be able to be presentable. Well, mm -hmm. In my mind, the, the mind is the same way. You need to exercise that muscle at all times. So when I ran out of tests that were really challenging, I, I, I realized that it was time for me to take a look at the level three. And the amazing thing of the level three process is that it, it through 
taking your basic and, and your preparatories and then through your disciplines, you start to realize how much you don't know. And you it makes you more inquisitive of the things that are out there that, you know, you have a incognitive ignorance of things that just plainly don't don't exist in your mind because you you haven't spent the time to realize them. And and that's kind of my takeaway of the level three process is I think it made me a, not just a better technician, but I think it made me a better human. When you take a look at the uh, level three basic, when they talk about physiology, you know, and they're, they talk about the you know, components of the human eye and, and how the eye operates. Mm -hmm. And then, yep. you know, people, you know, how people operate. If someone had a bad day at home or on their way to work, you know, they, they got into a minor car accident or something happened, it can really affect the outcome. And, and that's kind of my takeaway from the level three process is that I've learned so much through that, that I think it's not only made me a better technician, but it's made me a more understanding and compassionate human. Right. Wow. Yeah, that's, and that's interesting because I remember there was the, I think it's a teacher that told me at some point, this sentence really stuck with me for a long time. He said that if NDT, if you want to be into NDT, you need to love or at least to be okay by with uh, being tested often, taking exams all the time. And so, you know, in school, it was the perfect opportunity you know you need to get ready for that because it doesn't stop in school you know it doesn't stop once you once you've taken your first uh, or you pass your first test you're gonna need to keep doing it over and over uh, if you want to keep your levels too so that's uh, that's another thing you you don't stop learning you can't stop learning in NDT and that's something that I, I really like about well and that uh, the, what's the industry. Real? What's really nice with that is when you see the technological changes that have happened, yeah. I mean, you have to realize when I became a, an ultrasound technician, I mean, as a QC trainee, we had an old CRT green screen machine that had zero yeah. capabilities. It didn't have a gate. <laughs> it had nothing. Everything Some was nubs. <laughs> yes. You had knobs. I always joke and I say knobs and whizzers. Yeah. <laughs> you had knobs, you had whizzers and you had a slide rule. And, yep. and that's how we did things. And But yeah. what was really awesome was that I made three bad calls when I was a, a, a lower level technician. Okay. And all, oh, yeah. all three of those calls, I remember exactly, especially the last one, because the guy, I laid out a cutout in ultrasound from the wrong side because I had, I had looked at my ruler the wrong way and I was in a hurry and I sent the welder in from the wrong side of the joint. So then what mm. happened, he did not find the defect. When I went back out and right. did the second scan, the defect was still there, at which point I realized that I had sent him in from the wrong side. And he was a very large man and he was, <laughs> he was very unhappy with me. Oops. And I, I know his name to this very day because his <laughs> face was so red. And uh, what's really great is technology you know the the new machines that we run they have so much capability with the mm -hmm. with the onboard trig functions you know and that's that's something that's been around for sure. years but it really it really limits your ability to make mistakes mm -hmm. but therein you know we still make mistakes there's still a probability of detection rate and we still this is it's still a human element that is involved in this process that 
one of the best things that I learned early on was to be accepting of my failures, but to learn from every single one of them so that a failure should only happen one time. When you make a missed call and you call it from the wrong side, you should only do that one time. And you should that should have been a life lesson that, that taught you to never do that again. And, and to look at the technology we have, you know, as, as we move forward with phased array and we look at TFM and, and all the capabilities and the image quality that we have now that we just plainly didn't have. You know, when you're talking going back into the CRT days, I mean, to look at some of the, the equipment that's out there, it's just, it's amazing to see what we're capable of now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what, where we came from, you know, it's such a, it evolved pretty quickly, uh, all things considered, that's true. Well, and that's what's really odd. I'm, I'm not that old, and that all happened within my career. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And again, that's that's why it's important to keep being curious and still wanted to learn not not uh, it's never never finite basically but uh, but that that's a good segue for my other question so what other skills uh, do you think that uh, a a good inspector should should have you know like uh, being able to to look at their mistakes and say okay yeah i i screwed up but uh, i can make it uh, i can correct it i can uh, uh, or i can learn from it but what other skills are you looking for um, when you're uh, either hiring somebody or even working with an, another inspector? You know, one of the first things I always like is honesty. I, I love somebody that can admit if if you make a mistake. I mean, there's many times we have a lot of things going on in our lives. And, and as you know, I love technology, but one of the things that technology does is it really overwhelms our capabilities. It, but with that, I, I love someone who is just blunt, honest, that can just say, you know, okay, I made a mistake here, or I, I think we should go this route, but honesty would be my first, you know, character trait. My, I think right. my second one would be integrity. Mm-hmm. Uh, my yeah, th- that's something we hear often in the yes. world, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yes. It, well, there's, so there's so many motivators to people making a decision that to have the integrity you know, when you have a confliction of values, let's say hypothetically you work for an organization and in this call, you know, you, you have to make a decision and the decision you have to make that call could cost the company a large project delay or it could be liquidated damages. You still have to make that call for the betterment yeah. of society. Yeah. A lot of people will be unhappy with you, but you know, yes. it's still the right thing to do. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, and, you know, over the weekend I had a, a, a newer inspector, I mean, they've been at it a number of years, but they're coming up in their career and they had reached out from me. Now, we don't know each other aside from the internet, but they reached out to me, you know, with a, an opportunity for improvement, as I term them, on their project. And that's what I had said to them was that, you know, the easiest way I could explain it to someone is that I don't get the right to code the code by myself in, in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, the code says what it says. And if you need a modification, you ask for an RFI and you get the engineer of record to be able to make that approval. Um, that's that having that integrity to, you know, step up and say, you know, regardless of the confliction of values, we need to do the right thing. But here's a pathway to make that happen. You know, that that's really critical. I, I think the next thing would be an attention to detail. When you get into these disciplines, you know, one of the, the things I often heard coming up was that, you know, mag particle, there's a, there's a bit of a wives tale that says that anything you can see with the naked eye 
mag particle will find, but you really won't find anything with mag particle that you can't see, which is such a falsehood. All right. Um, yeah. Especially when you start looking at different mediums. If you know, if you're talking visible dry, uh, I wouldn't even agree with that. I would not even agree with that. But when you start talking about you know wet fluorescent, mm-hmm. the the sensitivity of that stuff is just amazing. Um, so having an attention to detail. So they, when you do something like a a yolk with visible dry particle, that you have the the wherewithal to focus and be able to pay attention to make sure that as an indication is developing, that you are cognizant of it, that you can you can pick it off. Right. Yeah. With all methods, really, you know, RT is the same way on films and UT, you know, what what stands out, basically, that's true that uh, not just, um, you know, being detail oriented, but being able to see what what stands out uh, of the of the rest really well and that's that's really where i think we as an industry need to do a better job i i had great mentors coming up when i was a qc trainee and didn't know anything i mean i did not know anything i had great people around me that i carried their tools i scraped their welds and i applied coupling or i i cleaned up after them and just carried tools and (laughs) we need to do that for this next batch that are coming up, there are many of us that had really good mentors that that was at a cost. And we mm-hmm. need to pay that bill by returning the favor for the others that are out there that they want to learn. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, that's that's something that, uh, you know, is kind of an issue with our industry is, you know, uh, PQ and DT in 2019 in their survey, they said that the average age uh, for, you know, the inspectors out there is 46 years old. And so we have a Uh, an industry uh, where you know inspectors are getting older and we need we need succession you know um so what what do you think this industry needs or what what should be the plan let's say for for this transition in your opinion i really think we need to take a look at apprenticeship now when i use that word a lot of times it conjures an idea of of a union and and things of that nature and i i want right. to separate the two i want i want to just talk about an apprenticeship where you bring somebody in underneath a more experienced individual and you follow a more regimented training methodology when mm-hmm. i when i had my firm one of the things that we did we developed an apprenticeship program And then we got that apprenticeship program approved by the state of Pennsylvania, which is where our company was based out of. Through that process, that allowed us to be able to hire people who may not have had an opportunity to come into an industry such as ours. And then it it compensated a specific amount of, of their wages up to a certain point. So we could take people who may not have known of NDT, much like I did, and kind of cherry pick them out of other industries and bring them into one that is a great paying, longevity uh, driven career. Mm -hmm. A lot of things are jobs, you know, welding. Welding is a career, but when you look at it as it's being applied, I view them more as jobs where Mm. a welder may go to work somewhere and then they'll work there until that they run out of a project and then they'll bounce to the next one. Where NDT, you kind of have that same ability, but because of the large capital investment required to be able to get somebody certified, you have a greater propensity for the company to want to hang on to that individual. So I really think we need to take a look at true apprenticeship. 
so that we can follow a more documented way of being able to validate that somebody has has obtained their certification through a true qualification process. Right, right. And so so for somebody who's starting or would be interested into uh, starting their their journey into uh, being a, an inspector, what do you say is the difference between, you know, the level one, the level two, the level three on the daily? You know, like I think um, most people are wanting to reach the level three because it sounds really good. <laughs> But what are we what are we doing once we're there? You know, it's uh, how different is it from the level one job? Well, it's it's kind of funny because the level three, you view it as more, at least I do. I have to speak, whenever I speak, I'm speaking from how my mind thinks, not necessarily what the industry thinks. But of course. I, uh, I look at the level three as more in the office, making sure that I's are dotted and T's are crossed. I don't really see the level three out into the field with exception to when there may be a new process or if there's something that they're they're questioning the results of then you would then you would be more like it would be more likely to see the level three out in the field um so a lot of times i think people look at the level three and when i came into ndt you know i was a welder and and i love welding don't get me wrong i absolutely love welding i i could weld until the day i i leave this earth but <laughs> When I saw the inspector and I saw them standing there watching me for hours on end, just standing, <laughs> and then I, I, in talking to them, I realized these guys were making more money than I was. That to me, holding I was, a, a I, pad, holding a notepad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, getting a notebook out of the back of their pocket, making, <laughs> scribbling a couple of lines of text, and and these guys were making serious bank over me. That. Yeah. Uh, I think a lot of times, you know, you look at something and you get a false sense of reality. Mm. When, you know, I think back, uh, I think back to me as a welder when I looked at the QC guy and I thought, oh, look how easy that is. I could do that. Um, a lot of times we do that with the level three. We look at the level three and we say, well, I can read out of a book. I can, I can get that. That, that's nothing. And we don't really contemplate what it takes to get to that point. Right. Yeah. It's kind of like, I know you're a welder and it's kind of like the individuals who think that anybody can weld, you know, it mm -hmm. takes, it takes hand-eye coordination and extreme dexterity to be able to do true welding, real yeah. welding. And a lot of practice. Yeah. Oh yes. Hours and hours and hours of being very unhappy with what is laying in front of you. Absolutely. <laughs> and, And that's a lot of times what we do is we look at things and we say, oh, well, I can, I know what it's going to be because I see what it is here, but it's a false sense of reality. So mm -hmm. when I talk about what I view the levels as, I'm going to view them as Sean experienced them. So yep. level one, you ask a lot of questions because you just plainly don't know anything. And some of them are great questions and some of them are just like, if you really thought about it, You could figure out the answer, but I love being around level ones because they ask crazy questions and it forces you, you know, because the longer you're at this, the more you forget some of the, the formal Basic. learning stuff you picked up. Right. Yeah, exactly. Your, your classroom learning. So you'll start mm -hmm. about hysteresis loop and, you know, you don't forget Snell's law. Snell's law lives with you every day for ultrasonics. 
you know, inverse square law and radiography, that stuff just lives with you. But when you become a functioning level two, especially if you've been at it a while, you start to walk away from some of that classroom stuff because you're you're into the day-to-day operations. And having level ones that are hungry around you is really nice because they hit you with questions that you just plainly don't think about. And many times it'll actually make you go, oh, I'm really busy right now. I'll get back to you on that. And then you sneak away and you're in your textbook and you're like, (laughs) oh, I forgot all about that. What in the world? So level ones, that's kind of my take on them. Once you get to level two, now again, this is Sean's take on the world. Level two is the Wild West. You have level twos that are extremely, extremely competent, have been at it forever, and really should be thinking about taking the level three. And if any of them are listening to this, stop being afraid of the level three, put some money together and go take the exam. Because you know that you are at the upper end of your arc of your learning knowledge and you need to find something that's going to push you. So that's that's the first group. Then you kind of have the second group, which is, you know, your rank and file. They're great technicians. They do it on a daily basis. They're just super reliable. And then you have the lower third. And you do have some level twos that really should be evaluating what they want to do in life. And uh, I look at level twos, you know, they're the ones that are actually out making the calls. Those are the ones that Mm -hmm. are out every day with the equipment in their hands, making the the difficult negotiations with fabrication or, you know, if you're out in the field with an erection crew, they're the ones that are really having to deal with that stuff. But the bulk of the work is really done by the level twos. Once you get to the level threes, you know, they're, they're kind of set aside. You know, they're, it's, it requires a greater amount of education through that process, I, I think that it creates a little bit more of a professionalism. And okay. one of the things with the level threes is that, you know, we look at them as subject matter experts. And and I shy away from the word expert. I, I really view an expert as somebody who could sit on a witness stand and be cross-examined at length and be able to speak professionally. So I, I really reserve expert to somebody who may be a PE level three or a PhD level three. Um, But with level threes, you have, you have kind of, it's kind of a division wall. You have those level twos who spent their years out there through a great program and have worked their way up to level three. And then you have others who have come in, they, they, maybe they have a college background and they got enough field experience to sit for their uh, level three, and they're super, super intelligent individuals, and thereby they obtain theirs. So you kind of have, you kind of have, in my eye, two different level threes. You kind of have a, a level three who is super great on the the technical aspect of it, and then you have those who are are more on the uh, they're more on the cerebral in that they're great on just the the mental side of things. And would you say that if you want to be a level three, you need to be, you need to love uh, writing procedures or anything like that? Is that, is there a specific daily task that you feel like is, 
you you gotta have to love this otherwise you know you'll be unhappy as a level three is there anything like that so i'm gonna say something that will date me there used to be a, a show <laughs> called batman and they had a red phone if i remember correctly and that's kind of <laughs> what level three is a lot of times level three once you obtain them people will call you with some of the craziest uh... notions and there's many times i'm an example two weeks ago somebody sent me a photo of the side of a fuselage of an airplane that it appeared that this plane did something wrong in landing. There was definitely a okay. bulge of the fuselage and there was something going on with rivets. So they asked me, oh, what would you do here and, and why? From one picture, From one, they would go. And I had to be honest, <laughs> I am not aerospace. I am a structures, oh, wow, I'm a structures individual. Yeah. I am bridge and building. That's what I have done. You know, I've done power piping, so I'm I'm also pretty up to speed on Ask Me. But uh, mm -hmm. aerospace is not my expertise. And that's where that, that honesty and integrity comes in that I had to say to them, I would love to help you. Um, that is not my area of expertise. And right. because of that, I would defer to someone who, who has an aerospace background. But here are the observations I'm making from just your one photo you've given me. It, mm -hmm. it appears that something in that in that plane is trying to push through the sidewall and it looks like your rivets got something going on. Um, that's what's kind of weird with the level three is mm -hmm. it's like sitting in they used to have a at Bethlehem Steel called the hot seat. And uh, some of my friends worked for Bethlehem Steel and one of them actually had the job of the hot seat. And what the hot seat did was anything went wrong in the facility, they called that phone and those people figured out what had to change to make it compliant. And that's a lot of times what the level wow. three is, is, is you get some of the craziest phone calls or emails or texts. And then you need to then back up analyze the situation and to determine if you truly have uh, the capability of addressing it. And then if you do, being able to lead them to the right resolution. Right. Well, that's very interesting. Yeah. To, to love problem solving. Otherwise, you might be a, an unhappy level three. <laughs> yeah. Root cause analysis. So RCA is is really huge. You know, I, I have uh, there's a book on my desk at my office from Deming and you know PDCA modeling, plan, do, check, act. And I, I think we do that every day in our lives or we should, you know, in PDCA modeling, you have a circle with arrows. So you, you plan what you're gonna do. Let's say hypothetically that, you know, you want to plant a garden. Well, the first thing you're gonna mm -hmm. do is you're gonna put this plan together. Well, what do I wanna grow? Where do I wanna grow it? So then you go out and you do it. Okay, we've planted the garden. Well, at the end of season, when you go to make that harvest, you go out and you bring in the harvest and you check to see how well your plan worked. And then you make modifications for the next season. Maybe you're growing tomatoes and you want to add a little bit more fertilizer or, or a little, you know, change the acidity of the soil. But that's all part of PDCA modeling. And that's that's really what you know, level three, you start doing a lot of of root cause analysis of determining, okay, here's what I want to do and, and here's how we're going to be able to do it. And that's really, when you look at a procedure, you know, procedure is great as long as it's been vetted. And, and mm -hmm. what we did at our lab, we made, uh, so we, we tested anchor bolts with ultrasonics. 
And okay. so what we would do is we would take a, a longitudinal beam transducer, which is we, we would trade term would say a straight beam. Mm-hmm. And you fire sound down through the length of that anchor bolt. Now, the anchor bolt could be, you know, 60 inches out to 120 inches. Uh, so what you're really looking at you, as you as you fire that sound, you're looking at the first 10 inches of sound to see if there's a thread failure where the anchor bolt, where it's going through the base plate, you've got some bending moment there. And you're really watching to see that that, uh, that that bolt is still intact in the thread zone because that's where you have your greatest propensity for failure. Gotcha. The second thing that you do in that process is you you look at mid-length. So you're wanting to see, like, is there anything, did this bolt snap in half somewhere mm-hmm. mid-length? Well, one of the things you have to do that you can make a procedure for that, and there's tons of procedures out there, but what we did that was a little bit different, we actually made boxes, and there are four bolts in each box, they are 18 inches long. Three bolts have something wrong with them, and one does not. And I do not tell the technician which is which. I, to test correct. Them. Okay. They get handed a procedure, and they get handed a box, and then they are to follow the procedure, test the four bolts, and then give me a disposition on the four bolts based on what they're seeing on their screen and not on any uh preconceived notions based on, you know, me telling them that three are bad, one are good. So that's one of the things that I think we, we as an industry could probably do a little bit better is being able to truly develop the procedures, but then also validate them to be able to make sure that we're delivering consistent results. Right. And and when you uh, started your career, Sean, did you have any any mentor or even somebody that supported you when you get a, you got started because you you mentioned that how important that can be uh, for somebody uh, who's starting in this industry. So did you have any anybody like that uh, to um, to help you out when you started? Yeah, and that's so. You have to realize when I got in, I was a knucklehead from the trades. You know, I I was. I was in pressure vessel and I got in trouble for my mouth. So I, I got blackballed <laughs> and I needed to spend a six month suspension with no work. And I just wasn't about oh. that. So I switched books oh. and I switched over to ironworking. And ironworking, it's pretty common to to be a little more vocal would be a nice way of putting it. Um, okay. So to go to come from the trades to come into NDT, you know, NDT expects a, a much greater amount of professionalism than being out in, you know, in the trades we call it being in the gangs. And mm-hmm. I yeah. miss the gangs so much because we had such camaraderie and we stuck together. But, you know, looking back on it, I never would have achieved what I could achieve had I stayed in the gangs. It really required to switch yeah. over. And through that, there are so many people that were great level threes over top of me that honestly, they were better to me than I was to them, especially starting out that, you know, now looking back that I really feel that I have a requirement to return that favor to the next batch that are coming up. So me, myself, even still, I have mentors around me that are so much smarter than I am and just so much they're they're more well-rounded that you need to keep somebody around you at all times that you can go to you can never be 
the smartest person in the room. Because once you do, you, you kind of begin atrophy. It goes back to that thing I said about muscles earlier. If you're not having your mind tested, your mind begins to atrophy. And you'll see this, you know, as people, when they get older and they retire and when they retire, they go to the couch and within six months, I mean, you can't even recognize the individual that Mm -hmm. having a great mentor around me, and I have many of them around me now, but on a different avenue, you know, when I had my company, we had started out in my basement. It it just, I had Mm -hmm. a job that, I was, I don't even want to get into a lot of detail on that because I don't want to divulge who it was, but I had a job that I wasn't that happy with. And I was looking at a balance sheet and we needed to make a million dollars a week just to pay the light Mm. bill, just to keep the lights on. That was just break even. And I was looking at how bad we were and the things, the missteps we had made and the fact that we were still making a ton of money. And I had a thought of if these individuals could do this and make this much money, how much could somebody do it, do, how much could somebody make trying to do it right the first time? Mm-hmm. So my wife and I had a discussion and we, we decided that it would be, it would be wise for us to go ahead and try it. I mean, I had a lot of great contacts and that's what's key in this business. This business is, is run primarily on who you know. And some people would say it's a good old boy network. I don't see it that way. Um, maybe it's sharing the expertise. Yes, yeah. mainly because I, I didn't always I didn't always come to the top of the heap because I knew somebody. But right. when somebody needed something and they knew I was the right individual for it, they would select me. So it, it definitely comes down to who you know. But my wife and I started our firm and uh, we, again, we started in our basement. Our goal was to make a laughable $70,000 a year because really I just wanted to get away from my corporate job and I wanted to make enough money to pay the bills and kind of hit the, the basics of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I want to make sure my family was taken care of yeah. and I had, I had a job that I could be proud of. You know, we were making some missteps mm-hmm. that I just was not happy having my name tied to. So we started our firm and it was kind of funny. We, we, we worked along the first year, you know, we didn't hit our target. Second year, we blew our target out of the water and we, we got an office building that we had a classroom and a lab in it. And I'll never, yeah, I'll never forget. I met uh, our salesperson from Olympus, uh, Brad Bornstein. And I met him at a fabrication facility about an hour and a half from our office. And I... I, How long ago, if I can ask, how long ago? Gosh, let me think. Just so we can put Brad on the spot. Four or five years. (laughs) I mean, five years ago. I'm I'm just guessing. I'm guessing it's got to be... Yeah, it's got to be like five. So poor Brad. He doesn't know me from anybody. And And what you don't know, because this is audio... I'm typically in a pair of Carhartts, a highway shirt, and I, I'm a shop guy. That's that's what I've always been, and I just kind of I, I kind of enjoy that. I I have a I have a wild theory, which is that I I like being uh, underappreciated, or I, I like people <laughs> to not expect what they're dealing with, because 
when you come in a certain way, people have a tendency to treat you based on your your appearance or based appearance, on their yeah. expectation of your stature. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm, yeah, even when I had my business, you know, we would show up at job sites and uh, I would just be in regular work attire. So I had employees who may not have, have ever worked with me that we may have worked together a whole shift before they ever even found out I was the uh, minority owner of the business. Right, that uh, right. Wow. But it's funny because Brad, he uh, he and I had a discussion. And at the time, you know, I was just a little tiny little operation. And I said to Brad that uh, today I'm a little company, but I'm not going to be little forever. I'm going to get bigger. And if you invest in me, I promise you I will return the favor. And I, I had recently had a bad dealing with the competitor of Olympus. And it was it was a perfect timing because Brad. I think he took that and walked away with it because he came back up and he, he had visited our facility up, up where our lab is. And he helped us link up with Olympus Financial, which helped us be able to finance the purchase of our first uh, Olympus 650 ultrasound unit. And what was really nice, we were still running older equipment that we had purchased off of eBay. And it really let us be able to have good state-of-the-art equipment in real time when we needed it. So then as our company started to grow and we added on more people, we added on more equipment. And prior to, I sold the assets of our business in April of 2019, but prior to that, we had purchased three Olympus 650s and Olympus MX2. And I could not have done that through Cloverfield, our, our former business. I could not have done that mm-hmm. if, if Olympus and especially my salesperson, Brad, had not taken me serious. You know, another thing that I really am thinking back on, we went to Fab Tech out in Las Vegas, my wife and I, and we spent mm-hmm. three days out there, but we spent a half of a day just at the Olympus stand prior to buying our MX2. And, oh, yeah. Okay. And they were so great. I mean, they spent so much time because I had started to, to get my eye on another unit and they, they let me run. Uh, they let me run that the other unit, which I can't think. Is that the Olympus 1000 that I'm thinking of? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, most likely. Yeah, right. Phase three. Right. So I looked at the 1000 because of the cost, you know, and, and when you're running a business, it's all about where you apply your money, your capital, That's where right. that capital is applied you know, needs to have a direct outcome. Uh, so I was looking at the 1000 and they, they were, they steered me away from that and steered me towards the MX2. And I'm so glad they did because it really, it really helped me get set up properly from the start. But I, I think back on just the great customer care that I've gotten from Olympus and listen, everything I'm saying regarding Olympus is free. This is from my own thoughts. At no point in time am I being compensated. I just want to let people know that you guys have been great for me and not just as a company, but as a person. You know, I, I had an interest in phased array probes. So I, I talked to Brad and he set it up and I went out to State College and I spent a half a day out there, you know, just oh, cool. just playing around. Nice. So prior to me buying the A24 probe that I use for doing phased array of anchor bolts, I got to run that probe out at State College with oh, that's great. with the actual designers right there, the people who are actually part of that process. But then they also walked me mm-hmm. through of, here's why a probe costs this much. And they showed me the processes that are required to be able to manufacture something of that nature. That 
really, I, I have nothing but great things to say about your organization and, and how well they've supported me, you know, since I left my former, uh, your, your competitor, who I was extremely loyal to. But Olympus has been just so great for me and, you know, those around me. Thank you, Sean. And I'm sure Brad will be uh, very appreciative as well. Thank you for saying this. Yes. Well, Sean, it's, it's been absolutely great to discuss with you today. Thank you so much for uh, what you've been doing and also for, for sharing uh, your experience with, with people. I think it's going to help a lot of uh, inspectors out there as well to, uh, to follow their journey. So thanks again for sharing all this with me today. Sure, no problem. If you enjoyed our chat, please feel free to comment or like this episode. And if you would like to hear someone on this show, or you would like to be on the show yourself, just email us at podcast at olympus.com and you could be our next guest. In the meantime, thanks for listening. This was Emily with Inspect Tech, the Olympus NDT podcast. Take care and we'll talk soon.